Uh, we're going to be back in the book of Joshua tonight, uh, continuing our series, Crossing the Jordan, and uh, kind of a big night. I'm excited about it. We're going to Jericho, and I'm thinking top five flannel graph stories of all times. This would definitely be on there. Baptism of Jesus with the little dove coming down, the city of Jericho. Um, so this is, this is definitely right up there with uh, one of the favorite stories told in, in kids' classes. Noah and the Ark is the one that always puzzles me because that's a flannel graph story too. And if you really think about that story, it's, it's pretty heavy. I mean, we focus on the people in the vessel that are saved, but what about all the other... Yeah, anyway. So tonight, I'm calling this Walking in Circles with Purpose. And I, it'll make sense if, if, if you follow with us in the text tonight. But uh, the, uh, it's been a couple of weeks since last week was the Super Bowl. But a couple of weeks ago when we talked uh, from the book of Joshua, we had... It was pretty neat. I mean, we saw the Israelites cross the Jordan River on dry land... Uh, the priests had to, had to put their feet into the river, had to step into the water before God acted. And we talked about how that principle is very real, uh, that faith involves walking. It's not just up here. It's something you do. And God wanted to give them a miracle. His plan was to give them a miracle. He wanted to give them all of these promises on the other side of the river. But he needed for them to literally take a step of faith. And so that's what they did. They crossed over. And now they are on the plains of Jericho, we are told. So they are, I mean, they are right outside the city walls of Jericho. And, I mean, this, if this were a Hollywood movie, this would be the height of tension. All, everything would be building up to this moment. Crossing the water, wonderful. But now they're face to face with enemies. And both sides are aware that a battle is imminent. Uh, both sides know that these tribes cannot possess the lands that they say God has promised them until they deal with Jericho, until they defeat Jericho in battle. Because they're not just going into the land to raid it, you know, take a bunch of stuff and then go back home. No, they're going to take the land, so Jericho has to fall. This walled city has to go down. Uh, now, that's the thing Jericho has going for it. Um, it is a walled city, and that was a big deal in the ancient world. It didn't mean that you never got conquered, it, but probably you didn't get conquered very often. It was probably a matter of decades or, or a couple of generations it, your city might fall to enemies. But it was very difficult, a hundred times or more difficult to take a walled city than just a, a village or town. It also meant they had a lot more wealth, they had a lot more opportunities, there was a lot more going on in a walled city because stuff wasn't just getting pillaged all of the time. Um, and I think, as I was thinking about the story this week, I, I would say it's a little bit like imagining a football game uh, and you've got two teams lining up, only one of the teams has a defensive line and the other team doesn't have a defensive line and the team with the defensive line uh, is, is going to be able to attack and, and do well or no, offensive line works better, is going to be able to protect their quarterback and everything better and so a walled city has an offensive line, it's harder to get to, get to their quarterback. Uh, so Jericho has this wall around it and it's got that going for it but if you read the story you can tell they understand they're facing long odds. Okay. The citizens of Jericho know there's a strong likelihood this is not going to end well for them. And so they can peek through holes in the wall or windows in the wall or they can climb up to the top of the wall and look down and they can see hundreds of thousands 
of people now uh, surrounding their city or in the distance at least of their city and they know a battle is looming so this is the first verse I mean the Bible tells us this first verse of chapter 6 says this now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites no one went out and no one came in this is I was thinking this week DEFCON one, uh, DEFCON one for the U.S. Department of Defense signifies that a nuclear war is imminent. You heard that a lot more when we were in the Cold War with the Soviets and everything. But nuclear war is imminent. Uh, the jargon they use for DEFCON one, the the shorthand is cocked pistol. So it's ready to fire. Uh, there will be war, 100% certainty. We know it's going to happen. Uh, both sides understand this. So Jericho, the walled city that serves as this entryway into the promised land, is on high alert. No travelers come in no, and go out. No merchants come in or go out. No uh, local farmers bringing stuff to the, to the farmer's market uh, come in or go out. Uh, the city is locked down. And I was thinking... M- there's not really a good comparison for us. I was thinking September 11th, but not exactly. But, I mean, there was that, that same anxiety, certainly, and uncertainty after September 11th, a sense that, you know, the world had, had changed for us and everything. And, I mean, for a time, we were kind of locked up. You know, no flights were coming in, no flights were going out, uh, which was a remarkable thing in U.S. history, uh, at least since we've had air travel. And that's the sense at Jericho. Um, a city gripped by fear, gripped by uncertainty, not sure what's going to happen, but pretty sure it's not going to be good. Um, and so <laughs> this is the thing, though. And, and we've gotten accustomed to this story, I think. And, and so maybe we can just kind of take a, a fresher look tonight and just try to appreciate the weirdness of this story um, because I think the weirdness is there on purpose. We'll talk about that more, more in a moment. But the battle plan, air quotes, uh, for the capture of Jericho, it doesn't involve any particular, uh, what you could identify as a military strategy. It is very, very peculiar. It is an odd battle plan, if you can even call it that. Um, but before we get into the battle plan and the odd details of it, uh, it is important to remember what has just happened. It's been two weeks for us, but the previous chapter, the end of the chapter, there is this unusual encounter. Uh, Joshua appears to be all alone. They've crossed over. He's meditating. He's collecting his thoughts. He's, he's off away from the group. And remember, he has this visitor that appears before him. And I imagine Joshua's sitting down, relaxing or something, maybe lying down. But we have this visitor, an angel, who stands before him with a drawn sword. It is a very intimidating scene. Okay, um, you don't use a sword to clip your toenails. Okay, you don't use a sword to butter your toast. Swords have a purpose, and it's killing people. And this angel stands before him with a drawn sword. That's a cock pistol. I mean, that's ready to go, ready to swing that thing. And so Joshua is—he's not a fool. He is a smart guy, and he knows. Yeah, I have no chance. I mean, this is, this is not going to be a fight <laughs> between me and the angel. So essentially, he's like, so okay, angel. You remember this. He says, okay, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or are you on our enemy side? And remember, Jericho's right there. So he's talking about us or them. 
Whose side are you on? And, and you probably remember what the angel says in reply. He says, neither. That's the short answer. Neither. I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. He says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. I am on the Lord's side. Uh, so Joshua's question is not a bad question. I mean, it's one that would be pretty obvious. I mean, are you here to kill me? Or are you here to help us kill them? Given the circumstances, that makes sense to ask whose side the angel is on. But the angelic general does not answer that question. He answers another question. I'm not, that's, no, I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. I'm on God's side. And I think, you know, if you step away from that, just kind of think about it. Uh, and maybe in terms of our prayer life, how often are we kind of doing that with God? God, are you... Can I bring in some air support, you know, for my prayers to help me with this sickness or this situation or this mess my kid has gotten themselves into? I need your help, God. Can I just need a little power. I need a little miracle. I need a little something from you. And I get it. I mean, our verse this week, right, in the uh, write it on our hearts is from Romans 8. And it's, you know, if the Lord is with us, who can be against us? I get it. Uh, God is with us in the sense he's adopted us as his children and all of that. But there is always a bigger question, a much bigger question than our personal interest in whatever problem or struggle or difficulty we have coming up this week. And the bigger question is not whether we, not whether God is on our side today, but whether we are on his side. Does that make sense? That's the question. Because we don't really... We don't need, or I think in our souls really even want, a God who works for us. That's not much of a God, you know. We were designed to work for God, to serve God, to worship God, to praise God, to be part of his movement, his agenda, his kingdom, his kingdom come, right? His will be done, not my kingdom become, my will be done. And somehow we can get that switch, but this story I think reminds us who's who. And one of my favorite quotes, and this was very obviously inspired by this, by this passage at the end of Joshua 5. It's a quote from President Abraham Lincoln. Uh, the Civil War is, 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 is ongoing, and somebody just asked him one day, they asked him, so, uh, Mr. President, do you believe that God is on our side or on the side of the rebels? And Abraham Lincoln knew his Bible, right? Um, he said this, he said, sir, my concern is not whether God is, is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. And that's good. That's good. So basically, the angel is putting Joshua in his place, not in a demeaning sort of way, but in an orienting sort of like You need to be oriented here uh, in a really a helpful way to remind Joshua who he is, remind him who God is. And Joshua got the message. We're told at the end of chapter 5, he takes off his sandals. He recognizes this is a holy moment. He's in the presence of the divine, and he worships. Now, chapter 6, for the very peculiar battle plan. Let's pick it up. Uh, in verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once. This is the flannel graph I remember growing up. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests 
carry trumpets of ram's horns, uh, shofars, in front of the ark. On day seven, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. So they're marching with the music this time. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. That is the strategy. That is all of the detail the Lord gives to his general, to Joshua, about how they are to take the city of Jericho, this walled city. These are the marching orders, and even down to the detail of who's going to be in which place. We're going to start out with the priest, with these trumpets, and the ark, and then the fighting men. Um, on day seven, you know, the music gets added with the trumpet being blown by the priest, and, and it's essentially... It's essentially seven days of military parades with some religious people thrown in. And after completing the circuit seven days, you've got this loud blast. The people shout. The walls come down. The city will be easy pickings. That is the strategy. That is what they've got for this first major engagement of the promised land military campaign. That's what they've got. And I think it's safe to say armies don't copy that one. Okay, I don't think they teach that at West Point, and I'm glad they don't teach that at West Point. Um, it's not a winning military strategy, nor was it supposed to look like a winning military strategy. Um, it's a spiritual strategy. It's not, and I think this is obvious, and I think it's supposed to be obvious. This is not a logical thing. This is not an, a human intelligence sort of thing. There, this is not like we're going to circle around every day to gather intelligence, find weak spots in the wall. No, that's not what it is. Um, this is not a brilliant military strategy. It's just not. So what was all of this? It's just God's instructions. And an invitation to follow and trust. That's what it is. Um, and yes, the people followed God's instructions to the letter, and the victory was theirs. We know the end of this story. They marched for a week, doing a circle a day for six days, seven circles around the city. On the final day, priests blasted their trumpets as instructed. The people shouted as they were directed, and the walls collapsed around this ancient city, and they raced in, and the city fell. The city was theirs. So the army of the 12 tribes swarmed in, Jericho fell. Joshua chapter 6, verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so that every man charged straight in, and they took the city. Now, they outnumbered the fighting men of Jericho by a lot, okay? But it wasn't by military force that the action was won by the Israelites. And while they followed these weird instructions to the letter, the conquest of Jericho was not accomplished because there was hidden military genius in those words that God gave them. From beginning to end, this is simply a story about obedience. That's all this is. It is a story about following God's instructions, about taking his will seriously. It's a story about recognizing that the battle belongs 
to the Lord, not to us. Um, They were not going to be able, and God made sure of this, right? They were not going to be able to walk off the battlefield on that day saying, we are the most amazing army ever. What they would be able to say is, we worship the most amazing God ever. So there's incredible power that's unleashed here. There's a a capacity that's tapped into that is not their own. And there are results that previously would have been deemed impossibilities, just a wall collapsing in front of them. And these are all tied to obedience. These are all tied to following God's instructions. And I believe, if, I think if you read this with honest eyes, with fresh look, you see that the military plan for taking Jericho, the plan that God gave to Joshua, was intentionally absurd. It was intentionally ridiculous. I think it was designed to be, from a military point of view, nonsense. So there could be, right, no doubt who was responsible for the outcome of that first battle in the promised land. This was 100% Yahweh. They didn't really contribute except running in after it was all over. Their part was faithfully following God's instructions. I was thinking about it this week. Their, their part was the cardio. Uh, take a walk. Every day for this week and seven times around the, around the city on the seventh day. Take a long walk. Their part was cardio. God's was the conquest. Okay? Um, he brought the victory because they trusted him. Because they trusted him. Even when his instructions didn't make sense to them. Even when they didn't understand everything he was asking. Now they could have... They could have mucked up the waters for sure. They could, have, they could have created ambiguity. They could have argued about the details of this plan. Um, they could have uh, debated these instructions, which were weird but clear, oddly specific, in fact. They could have done that, and we do that sometimes. Lee Strobel tells an interesting illustration. I think it's pretty good because I have a daughter. He says, imagine a daughter and her boyfriend going out for a Coke on a school night. The father says to her, you must be home before 11. It gets to be 10.45 p.m., and the two of them are still having a great time. They don't want the evening to end, so suddenly they begin to have difficulty (laughs) interpreting the father's instructions. What did he really mean when he said, you must be home by 11? Did he literally mean us, or was he talking about you in the the general sense of the word? Like people in general should be home by 11. Was he saying, in in effect, as a general rule, people must be home by 11, or was, he, or was he just making the observation that generally people are in their homes before 11? I mean, he wasn't very clear, was he? And what did he mean by, you must be home before 11? Would a loving father be so adamant and inflexible 
Yes, by the way. Um, he probably means it as a suggestion. I know he loves me, so isn't it implicit that he wants me to have a good time? And if I'm having fun, then wouldn't he want me, would he want me to end the evening so soon? And what did he mean by you must be home before 11? He didn't specify whose home. It could be anybody's home. Maybe he meant it figuratively. Remember the old saying, home is where the heart is. <laughs> My heart is right here, so doesn't that mean I'm already home? And what did he really mean when he said you must be home before 11? Did he mean that in an exact literal sense? And besides, he never specified 11 p.m. or 11 a.m. And he wasn't really clear whether he was dealing with standard, uh, with Central Standard Time or Eastern Time. In Hawaii, it's only a quarter to seven. Yeah? As a matter of fact, when you think about it, it's always before 11. Whatever time it is, it's always before the next 11. So with all these ambiguities, we can't really be sure what he meant at all. If he can't make himself more clear, we certainly can't be held responsible. I mean, you can do that. Even with very clear instructions, be home by 11, you can do that. You can debate. You can muck, it, muck up the waters. The Israelites could have done something like that with these peculiar instructions, um, and they would have missed out. They would have missed out on an amazing day, on an amazing victory. I mean, what if they had decided to shorten the walk on day seven? Seven times around is a lot of cardio. How about, how about three times around the city? Or the ark was kind of heavy. Uh, what if instead of carrying it the whole time, what if they just carried it on odd days, odd numbered days? You know, not every single day. And the trumpet blast, I mean, honestly, wouldn't a drum roll be nicer before those walls came down before, rather than a, a trumpet blast? I mean, let's be honest, God's instructions, they were weird. They didn't make much sense from a military perspective. But what they did, what those weird instructions did was show that the victory came from God, that it didn't come from them, right? That wasn't theirs. And what it did was demonstrate that their obedience unlocked God's blessing in very special ways. And I think the more you grow closer to the Father, the more you love the Father, the more you worship the Father because you want to, not because you have to, the more you grow in a relationship and He becomes Father and not just a deity to you, I believe you begin to appreciate his love for you. I believe you begin to appreciate his wisdom. Uh, I believe that you begin to appreciate that he has your best interests at heart. And when you know him and when you trust him, then obedience, it's not a burden at all. It's a blessing. And I would, I would suggest that the disciple who knows God's heart, the disciple that loves God, appreciates that obedience unlocks blessing and deeper fellowship with the Lord. Both of those things. 
And there are obviously dozens of passages, Old Testament, New New Testament, talking about what obedience does for us as believers. There's, in fact, the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119 is really all about obedience to God's Word. David said this. Actually, I don't have anything from Psalm 119. Oh, yeah, I do, but it's coming up later. I do want to share... First, 2 John 1, 6. Uh, this is, because I just find this interesting, this, it's about relationship. And this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. That's, I think you would say that's not the first definition of love you would come up with, but when you understand who God is, and you appreciate his wisdom, yeah, obedience is, I trust you. I'm going to follow what you, what you say. I love you. And the, the Israelites certainly experienced this in a tangible way, uh, the love of God, when they walked in obedience around Jericho. I mean, their, their experience of God's love wasn't that God sent them a, a heavenly hallmark card. And Joshua's like, let me read you this card that God just sent us. You'll see how much God loves you. It wasn't like that. They, it wasn't that they got a dozen roses from heaven. They experienced God's love in watching the walls of this enemy city fall before them uh, in seeing God open up the promised land that he had been telling them about for so long. And look, I mean, some think that obedience is here and grace is here and they kind of fight it out each other. Uh, with each other, and nothing could be further from the truth, really. Um, the fact is, or the fact that God has revealed His will to us, the fact that we even have a Bible to hold in our hands, that's, that, that He says, here's my wisdom, I want you to have access to it, um, that is an act of grace. That's a, that's a giving act right there. Um, he could have left us to fend for ourselves and just kind of watched <laughs> the insanity ensue. Uh, but he's a loving, he's a kind father, so he gave his instructions for our benefit because we're his children. And there's grace here because God understands that we are incapable of doing everything 100% right all of the time. Um, he's made provision for our sins, for our shortcomings at the cross. Now listen to David. We'll get to Psalm 119 now. David's words, and I want you to listen to these carefully I think you'll see that obedience and grace are actually designed to work perfectly together. So from Psalm 119, let's start reading in verse 4 and just read a few verses. You, God, you have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. Now there's a prayer I can pray. God, please don't give up on me. The King James translates this, Oh, forsake me not utterly. That's a good prayer too. Forsake me not utterly. Don't turn your back on me, God. 
And the fall of Jericho, the story of Joshua chapter 6, it speaks to the importance of obedience. It speaks to the reality that God can be trusted, that God can be counted on. Uh, We don't have to understand everything perfectly to say he's proven himself faithful. I'm going to continue to trust. I'm going to continue to honor him. And so if you feel, (laughs) I mean, thinking about today, where you're at in your life, if you feel like you're kind of walking in circles, like you've been going nowhere for a long time, and you feel like you're in this season of life where nothing seems to be happening, I think the message of Joshua 6 is keep walking faithfully. Keep walking faithfully. It may not make sense to you now, but if you walk faithfully and obediently, there is purpose even in the circles. And who knows, if you walk faithfully and obediently, you may be on the verge of watching some walls come crashing down and moving into the new promised land that God has for you. Let's pray, and then I'll pass it to, to John Scott. Father, thank you for this story. A story that many of us remember even when we were small children, hearing it and being impressed by it and imagining it. And tonight, as we reimagine it, as we think about it again, It just shows us how you work through not clever strategies, not human might, but you work according to your will and according to your power, and that you provide everything that your people need if they follow, if they listen, they follow. And God, I thank you for that great deliverance there at Jericho. I thank you for that grand entrance into the promised land. All they knew is that they were walking in circles, but they chose to trust you. And I pray, Father, that we will choose to trust you and that we will carefully observe the instructions that we've heard from you because you are a good Father, infinitely wiser than us. And the plans that you have for us are so much greater than any that we could imagine that we could dream up for ourselves. And so, Father, I pray for this fallible people. I pray that you will help us by not giving up on us. And we thank you for that moment on the cross where you proved once and for all you don't. You don't give up on sinners like us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your truth. As John 1 says, grace and truth come through Jesus. We praise him. We give our lives to him. Help us, Holy Spirit, to follow, to trust, and obey. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's be standing. Let's worship together.